Alright. Okay, recording looks good. Oh yeah, Here let's go. see what this looks like. Hey, I think I'm getting sound. I really gotta get like I don't know what your setup looks like. Um but do you have like a, a microphone uh stand yeah. that kinda like wraps around to where you're sitting? No, I actually um a while back uh we got a preamp and then uh, a standard directional microphone okay. with a bass drum microphone stand. Okay. And it works pretty well for uh for podcasting. Oh. Yeah, I'm using this uh USB condenser mic and I've got like a pop screen that's mounted to my desk. And it just sits on top of the desk, which is great for picking up the hum of the computer that's on the same desk and <laughs> me kicking the desk in the middle of the podcast and all of those wonderful things. Uh, well, it's, it's kind of impossible to filter out all of those noises. Uh, yeah, and some of it, of course, is going to get through. But the worst part is that I turn the sensitivity way down to keep all the ambient house noise and shit out. And that's great, except that I have to now lean within like an inch uh, of the microphone yeah. to be picked up or it sounds like tinny and like I'm in a can. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm like perched now, hovering as though I've got that ass <laughs> Curled poked out. It. Right, I'm getting way down low in order to get my face close enough to this mic to be audible. So, it's not the world's best rig. I've got to, I got to fix this. <laughs> well, now that you got your new fancy job, got all this money, might as well blow it on audio equipment. Job? I don't have no job. I started a small business. I have like three clients. Well, that's that's something. What do you mean you started a small business? You you are your own law firm of. John Brescia and Brescia? Yes, I am the J. Brescia Legal Services Limited Liability Company in the state of Ohio. Well, that's pretty cool. It's something, you know. I mean, it keeps you busy, and every now and then you get a couple of hundred bucks for doing something for somebody. <laughs> Is that mostly like small uh, issues like family law or real estate matters, or do you do other things? Uh, you know, I mean, at this point, I've actually managed to dodge family law entirely, for which I'm infinitely thankful Um but I've been doing uh, criminal defense and some business work, just drafting transactional things for people. Well, that's really cool. So. That's a good thing to, if you get in with business, that's a good place to be too. Because they uh, frequently have money and legal needs. Yeah, nothing like so than just being like, the attorney of record for a particular business. That's nice. Word. So, all right, but we're not here to talk about my limited cash flow. Um, your future millions, as I like to call it. Uh, limited. <laughs> limited only by my imagination. Exactly. Um, no, I guess we're here if you're ready to dive into this nonsense uh, to talk about Oblivion by David Foster Wallace. Yes. Okay. You, you sent out a tweet at some point that, that I felt was concerning. I need to make sure. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> Yes, and I did like another pioneer. I liked that story. Okay, okay. That I'm not calling the authorities on you right now <laughs> at all. You're going to have me committed? Yes. This man has lost his faculties. But you know what? Know. Honestly, uh, among all the possible stories to choose from, and you're going to hear paper rattling a lot because I wrote front and back of a legal pad of notes um, of all of the possible stories to choose from, Another Pioneer isn't the worst. Yes. Uh, in fact, I said that the, the story was very good, but it was as though it were told through fog or perhaps shit. <laughs> Did you write that uh, after you had already completed... Uh, the Suffering Channel, or... No, I read them in order from start to finish, and my notes go in order from start to finish, so some so of them... So that was just sort of a serendipitous choice of uh, <clears throat> profanity to describe how another pioneer kind of kind of goes down. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I didn't even see uh, the twist coming. There wasn't even really a twist to speak of, I guess. I didn't see the plot point coming yeah, in Suffering Channel, which, holy crap, that's a bad story, but... Uh, <laughs> Okay, I'm going to, no holds fucking barred today. I hated this book. I hated it Go so much. It, and there were parts of it, it, there were parts of it I liked, but mostly this book caused me misery. 
What did you think overall? Um, it did not make me miserable. Uh, generally speaking, I'm willing to kind of go where an author takes me. Um, and uh, I kind of... I felt like uh, Wallace was a little frou-frou a lot of the times. So like the art of... Uh, telling his story kind of confused the actual story itself and was often um, like the the story itself was never as important as the way it was told like I will say that about him he was uh, I mean it's not so much in all of them but in in a lot of them he's going for sort of a, a technical flourish and it makes it difficult to read at times yeah I can heartily concur with that statement i guess it just provoked a, a deal more ire in me than it did in you um let's see let me refer to my notes if you would like to go in order is it okay to go in story order yeah let's just do it that way that is perfectly all right okay the first tale is a tale of chicago marketing test market groups called mr squishy and yes. it is all jargonized and boring. The lack of resolution may be a legitimate literary device, but goddamn, it sucks. <laughs> oh, look at me. I'm wacky, and I have the footnote from the climbing guy in the middle of someone else's dialogue. How crazy and anti-consumerist I am. Yes. Yeah, that story, I mean... So, I, I was actually talking to somebody at a wedding about this, because they were, you know people I knew from college and they had all been in the honors college. So they were trying to tout their intellectual cred. So somebody asked, uh, what have you been reading lately? And so they all circled the table talking about whatever they'd been reading. And then when it got to me, I was like, Oh, I'm reading oblivion by David Foster Wallace. And one of the guys was like, he is my favorite author. <laughs> and like, so we're talking about it. And he, he actually says at one point, he asks a lot of you, and I agree with that statement. Some might say he asks too much. I feel like this book was definitely kind of a critical literary theory wet dream because there's all this stuff to dissect and get underneath in terms of the writing style. But just from a casual reader's point of view, it's kind of difficult to follow. And a lot of it uh, feels like a, a blue ball, especially in Mr. Squishy. Yeah, that particular story I mean, starting the book out and one of the guys i think maybe the fellow who suggested this on the forums uh mentioned that like oh god like forget about that story like i know it's the first story and you're going to start reading that don't let it taint your perception of the rest of the book because there's good stuff in here but holy crap that story is really bad and well, so even the person who's recommending the book is like ah this story not so much so i think that really does speak to like it, it really is uh, kind of no substance, but just a lot of style. And it seems just like it was experiment for experiment's sake. And that's fine, but I didn't like it. Yeah. And I mean, there's a, there's a certain, um, I shouldn't say, um, but there is a certain sense that style is substance in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to this book. Uh, yeah. I mean, I got the impression that there was this puzzle that was laid out before me when reading. And if I could just fit it all together, or if I was just smart enough to fit it all together, I would really get a kick out of, of this, this story. And I don't think I am smart enough to fit it all together, but I am sort of unable to, to dismiss that impression. Like, I really think there's something there. Uh, you just have to dig for it. And I'm not sure if, uh, it makes it hard to kind of get on him because I want to apologize and say, I'm sorry, David Foster Wallace. I wasn't smart enough to get your story. But then on the other hand, it's like, hey, David Foster Wallace, why didn't you help me get your story? Yeah, I mean, was there a that, story there? I, I agree with you on that because I felt the same thing at times where it's like I see a lot of the moving parts of this. It's not like they pass by my vision completely unnoticed. I see them. I see a lot of what he's doing. And then for some reason, at a certain point, it just breaks down where I can no longer make the connection between this one cluster of moving parts and this other cluster of moving parts and three or four more other clusters of independent moving parts that seem to imply that they're connected in some way, but the logic is not even apparent to me in the least. Uh, and so you're left wondering, is this defective prose or 
I the one who just isn't getting it, you know? And, and so I, I had moments quite often through the book feeling that very same way. Um, and at- Well, Mr. Squishy is, is especially adept at creating that impression of you because there isn't a very straightforward narrative. Um, in a sense, it is pure narrative. It just describes exactly what is happening uh, sort of at multiple levels of consciousness within this one character. And then there's also this other parallel narrative going on, which is the scene outside, which is um, referenced kind of sporadically. I mean, it, it seems very important, but it never actually plays a role in what's happening in the main thread of the story. So when John says, you know, there are these moving parts that never seem to connect, he's right. <laughs> there are moving parts in this story, actual what you would assume are parallel plot lines uh, that never touch one another. Yeah, and to sum up, I guess, what those are, because we're going to have to give a roughly brief summaries, I guess, of each of these things, and I apologize if these are skeletal or uh, not the best uh, or most comprehensive summaries, because sometimes I don't really know how to summarize these things. But um, <laughs> They defy description. They do, uh, so, quite often. Like, Mr. Squishy basically is this... It opens with a test market group, and this guy who is experienced in dealing with test marketing groups is test marketing this new candy bar. And there's this internal discussion that he's having with himself back and forth about, you know, how these things work, and I'm very good at this, and here's all this jargon, industry jargon, about how we use certain statistical formulas to evaluate things for marketing purposes. Meanwhile, there's a scene outside that same building where... A guy is free climbing using suction cups and some sort of inflatable suit and maybe an AR-15. I don't really know. Um, and, and he's climbing uh, the, the outside of the building uh, in apparently downtown Chicago. And then at the same time, at the very end, there's like the weird director character or chairman or something. It's been two months since I've read this. but And there's also this undercurrent of Maybe this supposedly main narrator, the test market dude, is making, like, sarin or something in his apartment. It's, I think it was resin. Was, was it ricin? Ricin, yeah. yeah ricin, the, the, the anthrax. It's a poison that's extracted yeah. from fermented beans. Yeah, ricin, which is like an anthrax-related uh, uh, agent. Yeah. It's really bizarre. I mean, the, the, the ricin comes in when he's talking about the poisoning of Tylenol in the 80s, I guess that was. Yeah, the Tylenol scare, which I remember very, very vaguely from the beginning of my life. Yeah, and so I, it's related, but then you get this weird sort of out-of-body experience description of the production of this chemical and points at which it could be inserted into this Mr. Squishy Cupcake and Mr. Squishy, the Mr. Squishy Cupcakes merits as a poison delivery system. Yeah, which, which, is, which seems to be saying, like, this guy, as maybe we all do, fantasizes about causing rather severe harm to these people that he has to be around as a result of his work every day. Because everybody in life, whether it's in work or in other situations where you just have to engage with other people, there are always people you don't like. And there are always situations in which you dislike meeting other people, regardless, really, of who they are. And that dislike translates sometimes into an intense desire to cause physical harm, a la postal shootings or uh, any of those sorts of flips and fits of rage. And so it seems to be mirroring that kind of thing, which in the 90s would not be wildly out of line, because there were several of those sorts of events uh, that had recently occurred in the popular culture. So that made sense. And then the fact that it didn't go anywhere and the fact that the climber guy really didn't go anywhere and evil chairman guy really didn't go anywhere. Basically, it's just a gigantic blue balling for 50 pages and it was a chore to get through. Well, I mean, that's what makes you kind of, or uh, this is kind of the point where, um, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's even really a blue balling because th there's this idea and it's a blue ball in terms of the the content of the story and what you expect from a story. Because you have all these sort of uh, suggested events 
that are going on and you're expecting this sort of violent upheaval of one form or another you're expecting murder on store shelves or you're expecting this marketing group to be disrupted by a free climber who is some kind of uh, really hyperactive WTO protester and he's just gonna you know totally wreck everything that's going on in there none of that actually happens and I think that that's sort of um, gosh I don't even know what the sort of cut short or pointlessness of the the story itself or of all those emotions is it's kind of the point in itself because he also talks about his um, unrequited love for one of the other women in his group and there's all these references to you know his sexual fantasies regarding her and how that will essentially be never or that will never be expressed and so that's all internalized and is sort of just completely abortive from the get-go so yeah i mean i don't know yeah there was one nice part to it that i thought uh it it was actually a thought that i'd had myself at some point uh in my life and so i assume that everybody uh maybe from say mid-20s on has probably had this thought at some level uh and in some vague way uh to read from the book here the almost 35-year-old Terry Schmidt had very nearly nothing left anymore of the delusion that he differed from the great herd of the common run of men, not even in his despair at not making a difference or in the great hunger to have an impact that in his late 20s he clung to as evidence that uh, even though he was emerging as a sort of failure, etc., etc. The sentences, by the way, are the reason I'm not reading it all, you get the gist. Uh, <laughs> is because this guy loves his run-on sentences. He loves to write sentences oh, that run for how pages at a time. And there'll also be multiple asides within a sentence. I think in the, uh, I don't remember what it was called, but in the dream study one, there was literally uh, a uh, a section that was, um, it had parentheses. So there was a parenthesis I know exactly inside which section of a parenthesis. Because I, I had to go back and read it like four times. I know. I read that probably <laughs> six or seven different times. Uh, but anyway, continue. Sorry. Yeah, but the idea is, like, you're not exceptional because most people are pretty much about within the the same little spectrum of normal humanity. So you're just probably an average dude doing average dude stuff. And even the fact that you feel bad that you aren't doing something noteworthy or exceptional or history-making is itself very average. Well, but not only... So not only is this guy extremely average, he's in a profession that seeks what appeals to the most average. Right. So in a banal existence, he sort of, his whole purpose is to perpetuate that banality. Yeah, so I think in that regard, it it really did hit on kind of the mundanity of most people's lives. And, you know, you feel like what you're doing is important or what you're doing matters. And sometimes to you, it really, really does. And sometimes to the people around you, it really, really does. Most of the time, grand scheme of things, we're all just average people living our average lives. We'll be forgotten, and that's kind of the end of it. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think that was kind of the idea why that executive was so evil, because he was a true believer. Like, this guy knows his whole life or his whole existence is kind of BS, but this other guy doesn't get it. He actually is either cynical enough or actually... He's either cynical enough to perpetuate the illusion and be successful or he's stupid enough to be successful doing something that is completely meaningless so yeah so i don't know i think that's about the deepest and most insightful thing that you can get out of the mr squishy story and maybe i'm wrong but that's what i took from it (laughs) yeah and i mean it, it is sort of you gotta be willing to give wallace a ton of rope because he is definitely taking advantage of... To hang of himself with? Oh, <laughs> too soon? <laughs> uh, yeah, that may not have been the most apropos turn of phrase. Or maybe it was perfect. Uh, no, he... Uh, yeah, he, he's going to... He takes a lot of latitude. And I actually ended up reading a review of The Suffering Channel uh, just to kind of get a glimpse into what other people felt about this book in general. And... I didn't realize it, but everybody describes him as, you know, completely postmodern. And I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense. It's just sort of structureless stream of conscious 
stories within stories. It just makes me sad that postmodern as a word, as a concept, as a genre, as a movement, whatever, has become so tainted with uh, the concept of, well, nothing matters, and, and so you can't really even judge the work. So it's, it's postmodern, and it can do whatever it wants. <laughs> no, that is not carte blanche to make shitty stuff. It still this has to be good. Yeah. So, whatever. Anyway, I'm I'm going to be overly hard on him the whole time, so people it's cool. people I'll, who I'll like take, him, I'm sorry and and Joel I'll take the I'm I'll moderate. take the good cop on a on some of these. Okay. Yeah, you you can kind of carry the water for him a little bit. <laughs> um but not too far cuz dead people don't need to drink. Um That's true. I'll I'll remember that. It's worth remembering. Um Soul is not a smithy, which I believe the recommender of this book said was uh, his favorite story. Um, it's set in the town that I live in right now, so that's something, I guess. Really? Yeah, Columbus, Ohio. That's funny. Yeah, they made references to the dispatch and a million other things. Uh, I will see what my notes say. Columbus. The thing is, it's both impressive and infuriating that Wallace inserts so many local points of reference. <laughs> He likely knew more about my town than I do, but it doesn't make the story any better. It's pretty distracting sometimes. These hyper-aware narr- uh, narrators seem incredibly unbelievable. And I think that more or less sums up my thoughts on that story. Yeah. Well, it is completely unbelievable because you actually have this bizarre... I mean, if you talk about stories within stories, that's exactly what's happening in The Soul is Not a Smithy because you have the sort of distractible student who is so engrossed in a fictionalized comic book that he's creating between the 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 grid of um like i don't even know what you want to call it like the lattice work in windows that keeps it from breaking he is putting little uh vignettes in that in this story of an abandoned puppy while at the same time a substitute teacher is having a complete psychotic break at the board. A substitute teacher who is subsequently shot in front of him, uh, though they don't really say that part in... Uh, that's never mentioned in the actual uh, narrative. Yeah, that's uh, that's the fairest summary of this, and it, it really is as simple as that. It's a school kid who likes to daydream. He looks out the window, he makes up stories, and turns the window panes into essentially comic book panels and uh or storyboards and and that's it he's just daydreaming while this event happens and he talks about the misadventures of this poor lost dog and the little girl that cares for it and uh and that's really that's the substance of it that i remember and of course the guy going completely crazy uh hang hang on hang on i think my dinner is here one second all right hey oh that looks very good Okay. Thank you. I was just delivered some Kung Pao chicken that Catherine has made. Sweet. Oh, I'm so excited. Uh, So, pardon me while I eat. Mm. Mmm. That's very good. Mmm. So. So, yeah, the guy has a psychotic break in the middle of class. Uh, the substitute teacher, and um, starts writing kill them, kill them, kill them on the board. And the students simply are traumatized and forced to sit through it. There are great descriptions about the Columbus landscape, the various watersheds that exist in this area, and streams and parts of town. That's great. It's great. But I just didn't really care that much about the story, I guess. What did you think? Um, I uh, I don't know. The more I think about this one, I can understand why somebody might like it. Because there's a bizarre kind of synchronicity between the events in uh, the abandoned puppy story and what's happening in real life. As that becomes more uh, kind of scary and frantic, uh, the teacher is also in the process of terrifying all the children everywhere. Uh, so there's this... I don't even know if that I got kind of a a vibe from it that this kid it's not really a story about the kid's recollection of what happened but the the kind of story or the narrative this kid remembers instead of what happened 
So there's this whole traumatic experience that's been sublimated into the story of this abandoned puppy. Um, and this, cause it, the kid has such a powerful, uh, memory of that story and of what was happening out the window that day. Um, but all of the, the language surrounding the teacher's breakdown is sort of related to him through third parties, you know, a newspaper article that's printed after the fact, uh, that he is sort of calling upon to, to, um, jog his memory or kind of recreate the events of that day because he himself in his own experience has barricaded from his mind what actually went down and there's also this really kind of poignant part where uh he muses on what kill them all actually referenced whether the teacher was actually a threat to anybody in the room uh he because he says you know he could have been talking about anything like he could have been talking about rats or uh, insects or anything else and he himself uh, ends up being killed without being sort of given a fair shake so there's this idea that there's this i, I don't know so there's there's two kind of streams going on there's the idea that the kid uh doesn't really remember anything because it's so locked up in his psyche and a, maybe a, essentially a ticking time bomb ready to break out at some point uh, that he needs to relate the reality of events through the filter of uh, a story about an abandoned dog uh, or there's also this idea that the story of the abandoned dog and its loneliness in the world is a parallel with the teacher himself who isn't really understood and eventually is uh, killed um uh, without anyone ever really understanding him. So I don't know. You've that's done it more justice than I would have. So actually very, very good. <laughs> I don't know. See, and that's kind of, that's the interesting thing that's always going on here. Um, you know, it, the, the stories aren't necessarily straightforward. They're, they're not straightforward. Not it's necessarily. You don't even need to qualify it. They are decidedly not straightforward. And that is precisely the point. Um, and, so you, you kind of have to give the author a lot of latitude to meditate on what he's written and kind of assume that there's some nugget there. And I don't know. It's not, it's not completely unfair to just say, no, I'm not willing to do that. I don't see anything indicating that that is necessary in what you're writing. Uh, I just have a tendency to really kind of trust authors, especially if you use big words. Like if you use a lot of big words, I'm just going to assume that you know what you're talking about and really try to scrape together something out of what you've written <laughs> so yeah, who knows? In, in fairness yeah this guy's vocabulary is insane oh my gosh dude i was looking up word if you if you haven't read this book already and you're contemplating it uh just download a dictionary app for your phone and have it handy because i was looking up probably two words every three pages and he, there's even there's some stuff that you can't even look up like when we get to it, one of the frustrations I had with another pioneer is that there's all this reference to the different versions of the story. Mm. And the descriptor that he uses was not in my dictionary. What was and the word? So I'm trying to remember what it was. Like epitatic? Yeah, I looked that up at one point. It was the first word that I wrote down that I didn't know um, in that story. And, and yeah... Yeah, I, I, I made a list. I learned more words and subsequently immediately forgot them <laughs> reading this book than I, than I did in three years of law school um, and all the bullshit esoteric terms that that brings. So, yeah, like kudos to this guy on being able to command so many different words. And it's not like I don't think he just went to the thesaurus and did it. I think he's actually familiar with a lot of these words. No, because they actually come up more Be than once. Right, because they're, they're words that he uses in more than one situation, and they're not they, just they simply... They span stories. They're not like just hyperbolic use... adjectives. Yeah. Like, well, I could say red, or I could say, and then you up it to the nth Sanguine. degree. Sanguine. Yeah. So it, it's not flood versus deluge. It's <laughs> the difference between knowing a concept and having no fucking idea that it exists. <laughs> that's right oh uh, yeah so in, so in that respect that hands down this guy is the king I, don't, I can't fight it like that's he's got my approbation on that one 
<laughs> but at the same time, you still feel like he's kind of wagging his dick in front of you. Uh, you know, I mean, just, I, I guess I don't like penises very much. <laughs> Maybe that's my problem with you, David Foster Wallace. I just don't want your penis. Behold my word, Wang. It is constructed of many syllables. <sighs> yeah, so anyway, uh, The Soul's Not Smithy. And one of the things that I was trying to figure out is how that title even relates to this story. I have I an interesting thing my brain. I assumed that I didn't understand the sense that he was using Smithy in, but I looked it up and no, I knew exactly what that word meant. <laughs> yeah, and I have here, if I can drag this over to where I'm recording so I can see... Damn you, you bastard. Okay, this, I'm guessing, is a reference to a James Joyce quote that I just randomly saw the other day. Okay. Welcome, O life. I go to encounter for the millionth time the reality of experience and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. Yeah, that's what um, the main character of the portrait, uh, the portrait of the artist says when he is leaving Dublin to go to London. Okay. So what is that guy's name? Oh, Stephen something. After Stephen reading, Daedalus. After reading Boom. a lot of the Dubliners, and that's good work. Good job. After reading a lot of the Dubliners, I decided uh, no more joys for me. And so I, I missed that Dude, one. Dude, read a portrait of the artist. You'll like that one. I promise. Okay. It's not frou-frou at all. Very straightforward. Uh, it's just about a guy struggling with his identity and trying to get out from under the baggage of whatever being Irish meant at the time. I think that you will. I, I really enjoyed that book. And it's nothing like, you know, Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake where he goes off the deep end. Okay. In a more Foster Wallace direction. Well, in that respect, then I might enjoy it, yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll make sure to unblacklist that one. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, so I'm assuming that that's a reference to that. Now, having not read the work, the connection is lost on me. But No, yeah, so I have no idea, honestly, how that relates. The fact that it is a reference to Joyce... Um, I don't know. Maybe he is talking. Th that whole point I had about structuring reality, um, you know, the kid kind of coming to terms with it through the story of the dog. Um, maybe that's what he's talking about, how this, there's this idea that literature creates reality unto itself. And in a certain sense, you know, in a more kind of, I guess, solipsistic bent, uh, we actually create our own reality. So, who knows? That's better than I could do with it, so. <laughs> the soul is not a smithy. Actually, it's not that bad a story. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, they're, yeah. The, uh, the narration what... gets me down just because I think it's, it's this, like, distracted, mixed with the dull kind of aspects of it. That it's like, ah, okay, this is dragging really badly. But yeah. I mean, what it does, I can respect. I don't hate it. It's just, it takes... And this is, I think, a criticism I can level at almost every story in this book. It takes so damn long to get where he's going, and I don't know that the payoff is any better for it. Yeah, I can agree with that. The I struggle with the idea of the payoff in the end, because it's not, you know, I guess postmodern means it's not following a classical structure, so you you don't have the typical beginning, middle, and end with a climax anywhere. There is a little bit of that but for instance in the soul is not a smithy you don't know what happens to the teacher the whole action of this story is around this guy freaking out and they make a reference to the police not giving him a chance to explain himself or not having the, the sort of grace to assume that this dude isn't going to murder the kids that are remaining in the um this classroom or even to think this maybe this isn't a hostage situation maybe these kids are really just too dumb to get out of their chairs and run away and this guy is completely harmless he's just gone catatonic at the board writing something violent and all of that is suggested but never really resolved like you don't really know what happened to the teacher you can assume that he was killed uh based on the content but it doesn't happen in the story itself like, there's not a moment where the guy says, oh, and I looked up from my desk, 
and a police officer kicked down the door and bludgeoned the dude to death or, you know, fired on sight. Like, there's none of that. You don't even know how the kid got out of the classroom. Yeah, it's, again, kind of a letdown at the end. I don't know that the meandering is really worth it for the distance that he takes it. Um, there is some interesting stuff happening, I'll grant that. Uh, but, again, just all told, I guess I'm using crude like cost-benefit analysis or something, uh, like economics opportunity cost analysis, perhaps. I could have done something else. I could have read something else. <laughs> That's right. In either the it's amount of pages, the amount of time. It wasn't worth the potential enjoyment lost during yeah. other activities. And I didn't really get that big a reward from this. And I feel like in this story, for instance, I think I kind of got everything that was happening. Yeah. And so I'm not really left wondering, like, well, did I miss something huge? Did I miss the whole point of the story? I think... I think I understood, like, when you gave your distillation of what you thought it was, that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's that's what I got. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, the incompleteness of it, um, or the, the seemingly incomplete nature of it. I'm guessing he toiled over this long and hard, so this is the story he wanted to tell. And the extent to which you regard it as incomplete is a, an insult to, you know, the dead David Foster Wallace. But, you know, who knows? Um, yeah. All right, Jesus, we are 37 minutes into this. We've done two stories. That's cool. We can do it. Let's hammer it out. All right, well, the next one is mercifully brief, because if it went on much longer, I would have killed myself. Um, Incarnations, which is the story about the baby pulling the pot of water off the stove and burning itself. Oh, my gosh. Did that not hurt you so bad? Oh, I... I was reading that on a bus coming back from Maine and I I almost, you know, I kind of had to like, you know, bite down on my lip a little bit to keep from crying. It was just so sad. And then the the reference to everything is this abstracted ideal cuz you have the baby, the mama, the daddy and oh my gosh. Yeah. Pure it, agony. That one as I noted, my only note for this story, it's like two pages long. Um, my note is brief, sad, and thus far the best piece in the book. Yeah. Just, he does an excellent job of making you feel awful for those people. <laughs> just all the way around. And there's, there's not even fault. It's just this idea, that sense of helplessness as though you were, say you were bound up. As a child, this is a weird tale to tell, but it, it's what I thought of. Imagine the baby, right? Mm-hmm. The baby's helpless. It's trying to explain through its screaming and wailing that I'm not just burned there. You've got to take this diaper off. You're killing me. Yeah. When I was a kid, I would roll up in blankets or carpets or whatever, right? Lay on the ground, grab one end of it, and roll myself on my side until I was kind of, you know, egg-rolled inside that Um And then I would panic because I couldn't move any of my limbs. And I was horrified that I was going to be stuck in this situation. And I would just have this fit of complete panic and have to immediately unroll myself. Or I would just lose my mind. It was just, it was so terrifying, this sense of of mortal panic. And so I imagine that that sense of panic and this, like, I need to do something, coupled with the idea of total helplessness... Yes. Like, and the, that's the, what it's trying to convey and it it just cuts right to the core of me the idea that that you know even if you can't explain in adult rational terms you know shit's wrong and you know generally what that is because you can feel all of the nerve impulses in your body the same as anybody else. But the way that that helplessness transcends the situation of the baby in this story and extends to the parents. Yes, exactly. Is what is truly kind of terrifying. And then also, it contextualizes the idea of the ineffable in such a negative and horrifying way that you're just like, oh my gosh, dude, you need to get back on Xanax. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> and I mean, like, that's a theme. I don't, I, I mean, I don't want to speculate too much on why he's talking about oblivion, but in all of the stories, there's kind of this thread of uh, being unable to express yourself to other human beings. 
in one form or another. Yeah. So that in is in this story is so palpable and agonizing um, because it's a pre-verbal baby and it's also a parent trying to read the sort of writhing communication of the child and how ineffectual they are in doing that uh, that really it just puts a dagger in your heart and it's so painful and I guess if you interpreted all of your relationships from the perspective of either of those places you're either you're unable to understand completely somebody in agony or you're unable to express your agony to anybody effectively yeah that's a, a recipe for disaster yeah and the and the context uh, of this story makes it particularly jarring because it disarms you the idea of this happy family shattered by this tragedy uh, using that bypasses basically all of your defenses in terms of adult relationships and viewing them as structured or having mm. your normal ways of perception blocking that sort of analysis or understanding it just cuts right to the quick yeah absolutely this story was painful to read i was so glad when it was over yeah if it, I, if it I, went on one more page no i would have been like balling it would have been real bad <laughs> i don't know if i'd be able to read the rest of the book because you're just like oh my if it, if this is only like page 60 or you know page 120 there this book is 300 some pages long i don't what are you going to do to me in the rest of it i mean thankfully he kind of just gets onto his snarky uh over intellectualizing later on and moves away from just splitting open your whole being but holy cow yeah, anything to blunt my misery yeah um so speaking of miserable okay no actually another pioneer is not miserable um <laughs> the next story another pioneer is actually a very good story um it just does that thing i don't like uh let's go to the notes <laughs> yeah, let's go to the tape. What was John doing when he was reading this one? This is me hammering the book with my fist. More rambling narrative with dense prose. Uh, the point about learning and summarily forgetting more words, blah, blah, blah. At which point I run into the paragraph, okay, he used agape and agape in the same paragraph. That's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> that was awesome. I noticed that too. And uh, yeah, the story was great, but it was just, told through a haze essentially he, he also uses the word umphalos in that story which is in also along with agape is significant in christian traditions right so just tossing that out there um but yeah i don't know this story was interesting yeah what do you, you have know, to like say the, about it the actual story <laughs> that was going on uh the the primary narrative the frame was not all that interesting because it's just a guy relating what airline passengers had been saying. And that's not particularly compelling, but the, the story that's being told by those airline passengers, like apparently from one to the other, um, is very, very cool. And yeah. I didn't even bother, and maybe I'm wrong in this respect, but I didn't bother to take this into like deep places. I just really enjoyed the story, and so I dug and dug and dug just to get that story. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of I I do think it would be interesting if it was just a straight up t tale of this uh, you know, divine child and how he is he eventually came to be feared and loathed by the people who had exalted him initially. Yeah, apparently this young child if presented with a question could provide the correct answer to that question no matter what it is. And so this is in a a tribal, what, South American context? Yeah, the, the idea is that this is a tribe in the Amazon. And more specifically, it's just a story about a specific tribe in the Amazon. Hmm. And so, at first, people note this kid's talent, his ability to convey this information that is correct or beneficial. Um, so they, they elevate him in this uh, society's status up to this sort of priestly class that otherwise wouldn't i think even exist there was some shaman but this is way beyond that this is up to the level of essentially a demigod yeah well they they talk about his he isn't i guess he's called divine but they uh they do say that he is born of the spirits of the forest that's why he's eventually taken away from his parents because you know they create a whole mythology around him 
um, having been found rather than birthed, um, which I, you know, it's kind of interesting to, to think I, I, this is the way I contextualize this story because there's, there's two threads here. Um, the story is being told in a plane and there are multiple references to supercomputing. Um, so I think that Wallace is driving for getting at the core of the modern conception of religion in a sense. Um, and the ascription of many of the uh, ideas that used to be um, what people went to religion for, uh, now those, those same uh, concepts are ascribed to technology. So that's one layer. Like, you know, it's being told on a plane, which is a miracle in itself. Uh, and then you've also got this kid who's operating like a computer and an ever more complex computer. And eventually... Uh, a computer that is beyond the control of its creators because that's that like priestly class that john mentioned these were just people who uh came to ask the oracle the right question and they taught people how to formulate that question and it's it's uh it's impossible not to think about um computer programmers in that light uh you I know mean, these it's the old uh it's the old line that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. The exactly. same sort of principle uh, is at work in this story. Yeah. Well, and, and he goes kind of deeper than that because it's also just uh, maybe at a more surface level. Um, I don't know how, you know, what direction we're going in the onion. Uh, it's also just kind of about, I guess, Wallace kind of ruminating on how the stories of religion come to us anyway because it's always first-hand knowledge half heard over somebody else's shoulder in a sense. Yeah, there's it's not like it's peer-reviewed literature. These are tales told by people, overheard by other people, maybe altered, uh told incorrectly, whatever. So, well, yeah. he also goes into like the whole idea of virgining or virgining, not virgining. Virgining. Um, that sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, so yes. Uh but it, the whole idea of the epitatic I, th there's a lot going on you know you could look at it in terms of um or th like there when he talked about the three different possible explanations for the story um it's hard not to draw a parallel there between um what he's talking about and the synoptic gospels where you have these stories of essentially the same thing uh but told in slightly different ways that are kind of significant but yeah so, I mean, I don't know. Uh, that's kind of why I liked Another Pioneer so much, because it's, uh, it's, it's kind of dense. Um, and it, I don't know, it touches on a lot of topics that I spent a lot of time thinking about. So I, was, I enjoyed it greatly. Yeah, the, the religious comparisons were in particular, I think, very effective with me as well, uh, which is why I like that aspect of it. And that's actually about as far as I took anything in terms of analysis. Uh, I, I looked for the story and then uh, yeah the, the the Christian mythology connections, uh, prompted by use of salient Greek terminology. Yeah. Um, so. But also the 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 primeval jungle being the the focus, drawing it away from that Eurocentric point of view and um, sort of uh, untethering it from a strictly European interpretation. Because I think he's driving harder for a more universal truth. So putting it somewhere else uh, was significant. And then isn't there some sort of uh, sweet pleasure in having a person who is this postmodern deconstructionist type uh, cynic fellow talking about universal laws in that respect? Uh, well, I don't even know, universalism is the province of uh, the religious zealot that he's modeling, essentially, in this, the religious character. I uh, guess in one sense, although it's sort of a cynical end, because the, what ends up happening is the society abandons its, abandons its advancement uh, due to fear, because the, the god that they propped up grows beyond their control, so they destroy their whole village and end up back at a hunting and gathering society where using his counsel, they had developed uh, agricultural techniques that were threatening to upset the balance in their section of the world. <laughs> like, 
It's so... Yeah, in fact, they, they leave him to starve to death on his little pallet. So. Yeah. Well, even beyond just starving to death, they try to starve him. Uh, then they burn the village down. Yeah, yeah. So they go beyond starving him. <laughs> like, they actively try to end his existence. Um, um, and there was an interesting thing about the the classes of, essentially, lobbyists that built up around uh, this kid helping you phrase your questions just precisely and acting as the intercessor, uh, which you could then take as this sort of church apparatus a la Catholicism or any large established religion. Uh, the idea that they're there to profit, essentially, as the go-between uh, between the common man and the mystical. Um, yeah, well, and, and also I think he's trying to unbind it just from... He's treating uh, religion as just any other idea. Oh, sure, uh, sure. I think that's where the, the computer analogy comes in. Um, he's just saying that we're all... I, I mean, this is the impression that I got from it, uh, that we are all screwed. Uh, no matter how far we advance, we will inevitably abandon our creations because they will grow beyond our control and beyond anything else or more than anything else. We lust after control. And so if you add any element of fear we will revert back to a primeval state of affairs uh, just to be uh, in a place where things make sense again. Which is, I don't know, sort of despondent. Oh, yeah, because this is such a cheerful book, you know. This is way out of line. Well, did, right? I mean, also, do you think... I think it was Yeats who described history as moving in a gyre, where, you know, you have these great spiraling arches, but they're all moving out of a central point. So as much as culture and society moves forward, there's always a folding back on itself and a, I guess an implied cataclysm that, uh, that reverses much of the progress of centuries or millennia. The inescapable idea that we're all human beings and that we continue to be despite ourselves throughout all of our history. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think that that's just partially just about worshiping Rome and being angry that the civ that that civilization fell apart so in that sense it's totally eurocentric because it fails to account for what was going on in china and india and all the other places of the world before they were molested by steel and guns man that that's pretty terrifying i've never been molested by steel but it sounds <laughs> uh downright unpleasant he looks just like Shaq. that's how that goes down okay that's it's, um <laughs> I'm never going to sleep again. <laughs> All right, but let's move on. We've still got a ton of material, I guess. Start. Yeah. So, in that vein, we'll do three, two, one, and then clap. Three, yes. two, one. All right. Awesome. Perfecto.